Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Immigration has become one of the biggest issues in Western democracies, and the debate is so charged, it is hard to know who to believe, which is why Hinderhaus has written uh, How Migration Really Works, a factful guide to the most divisive issue in politics. So welcome to you. Thank you. Your, your basic idea is to bust some myths to try and get some facts into the debate. Yeah, but but more this is a more overall aim to my book, which is really to go beyond the current polarized polarized debate, and which is in a way for quite silly if you think about it. I mean, I've been asked many times, you know, you're in favor or against migration. I always say then, well, it's like asking a, an economist whether he's in favor or against the economy, and it is kind of the almost, I would say, silliness of a lot of the debate or the very low level of the debate. There is very little debate about how then are we going to do things with migration? Because, you know, there's a lot of opinion about migration, not much knowledge about migration. And the knowledge and the facts will always bring us down to much more nuance. And that is really what I hope to do. So my book is also critical towards what I call left-wing migration myths, but also right-wing migration myths. And there are some myths that you can find across your political spectrum. Okay, well, let's just actually, I mean, there are lots of myths uh, which you're busting, uh, Mm. but let's just, I think maybe just take one example of each then to give people a flavor of this before we get into more detail. So can you give us, you know, a a significant left-wing myth and a a significant right-wing myth, if you like? Perhaps I'll, if you allow me, I start with a general myth that everybody seems to believe, which is that we live in a times of an unprecedented global migration displacement or migration crisis. And you get this impression when you yeah, look at the news and, and when you hear politicians speaking about migration, you get this idea of we are being overwhelmed basically by an increasing wave of people trying to come our way. Now, the left and the right tend to have different solutions for this idea. So on the right, you'll hear much more about more border controls. Let's stop the boat, indeed. On the left, you'll hear rather that uh, we have to help poor countries to become richer so people don't have to leave, we have to prevent warfare. But the underlying assumption that migration is at an all-time high in a way spinning out of control is quite widely shared, actually. Uh, But if you look at the data, you get a much more um, nuanced perspective. Because, of course, if you look at a particular place or neighborhood where a lot of migrants concentrate, you'll easily get this impression, or indeed, if you look at the news. But international migrants are roughly 3% of the world population, and that percentage has remained remarkable stable over the last 50 years. And a century ago, it was probably higher when many Europeans moved to the New World. Also, when you look at refugees, it goes up and down and up and down. It really depends on levels of conflict in, in, in countries in our vicinity, basically. But if you look again at the long term, at the global level, roughly one out of 10 migrants in the world is a refugee, which means 0.3% of the world population. And that percentage is remarkably stable over the longer term. Same thing for illegal migration. Um, People think this is spinning out of control, but once again, it is not as massive as we think, and it is certainly not spinning out of control. One statistic to illustrate this 
nine out of 10 Africans that move to Europe migrate legally with passports and visas in hand. And we get a very different impression. So this is not to deny problems that may exist on the local level, but this overall idea that this increasingly massive wave of people is coming our way is simply not backed up by the data. And that is actually something you find yeah, all across the board. And even international refugee organizations will create this impression of things spinning out of control. But actually, if you look at the facts, there's no need to panic. Okay, let, let me just uh, ask a couple of things about that. I mean, w- when I read those figures in your book, one thing that occurred to me is that the effect of the same number of migrants as a percentage of the population will, will seem greater because you know populations in the West are declining and the world population is obviously increasing. So you know, that, 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 that may lead to a different impression than the, the, you know, if you measure it in terms of a percentage of world population, the number of migrants, that, that you know, that, that, that might lead to a somewhat misleading impression. Isn't that right? No, you, you're definitely right. What I also say in my book, from a perspective of Europe, everything has changed, obviously. It, it used to be Europeans who left the European continent, and the Europeans tended to dominate world migration up to the Second World War. So there has been this process, which I call in the book, a global migration reversal, in which Western Europe has transformed from the main source of world migrants to an important destination. So we see a complete reversal of those patterns. Yes, of course, from a perspective of the UK or other Western European countries like France or the Netherlands, it is a complete game changer in the sense that we have become the destination. Not as massive as we might think, but there has been definitely a structural increase in migration to the Western world. But this is not so much about our borders being overrun by illegal migrants, which is the impression you would get. It is really related to the structural increase in labor demand. And that's something you can see in Britain. Ever since the 1990s, we have seen an increasing trend of immigration to Britain, which has primarily been driven by growing labor shortages, both for higher and lower skilled work. So yeah, there has definitely been an increase. Roughly 15% of the population of the UK is an immigrant, the same for most other Western countries. But this is not about illegal migration, or this is not about our borders getting out of control. This is about indeed a structural shift in the global economy and indeed demographics. Yeah, I mean, just to give some some sort of substance to that, the, the UK figures for last year where net migration was 662,000. It is a very high number. It was a record high number. in the year. Yeah, in the years before Brexit, it was around 200,000 net migration. I remember in the days of David Cameron, the policy goal was set to keep it under 100,000. And since Brexit has really soared, and partly it has to do with Brexit, it does. I mean, the, the numbers, just to break them down, for, I mean, a, a very amazingly high proportion of students is for, 43% of students or their dependents. And then refugee and humanitarian resettlement, 30%, skilled workers, 24%. I mean, it, it, I mean, one of the things listening to those numbers is actually the skilled labor bit you're talking about is only a quarter of it. The bulk of it is students. Yeah, a lot of students, also lower skilled work. We don't talk about this much. They often don't appear in the figures. It, there is also a proportion of undocumented migrants amongst those populations. And this is uh, a lot of stuff that is not really reaching the headlines. You see that in all European countries, actually. You see that in Western Europe, you see a structural long-term increase. Just if you look beyond the yearly figures and yearly exceptions we may have, there is a structural increase of migration of higher and lower skilled works, but also of students, particularly to the UK. And UK universities have been actively recruiting abroad, actually, students. It's partly also because of the fees they're paying. 
And of course, there is growing shortages in all sorts of forms of skilled and lower skilled labor. And that is a reality that Brexit hasn't taken away. And, and that is, I think, the real issue here. Whether you talk about Britain, where you talk about other Western countries, you cannot have an, a thriving economy where you find a lot of labor demand being generated for all sorts of migrants. And on the other hand, you want structurally lower immigration. In a way, you can't eat your cake and have it too. And I think this is a structural issue all across Western Europe and in the United States. And particularly when we look at the lack of legal channels for lower skilled labor. And actually what you've seen since Brexit, that the UK government has lowered thresholds for all sorts of immigration because Brexit made an end to free circulation from Eastern Europe. It didn't end those labor shortages. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, in the last few weeks, actually, they've tightened them. Well, they're trying to tighten them up. But yes, uh, that's right. The the, the shortages created by Brexit have been filled with people mainly from Nigeria and India. What what about the integration issues, though, that come out of this? I mean, I I thought it was quite interesting what you said, because we all forget it, of course, that so many Europeans went to the United States. uh, And in, in terms of the American Indian population, I mean, they really were overwhelmed. And of course, it was disastrous for them, wasn't it? I mean, I think many people would think that, that the American Indian experience was, was pretty grim. How do you reflect on integration in the, in, in the light of their experience? So what really matters is the amount of power you come with. So if we see contemporary migration to Western countries, you talk about relatively lower numbers of people coming in with no aim to overwhelm the current population. But obviously, if you talk about colonization and Europeans moving abroad, uh, occupying other territories uh, without asking permission. I, I sometimes say, well, that's the biggest illegal migration in human history because Europeans indeed came with guns uh, and gunboats uh, to overwhelm other countries. So to reverse that perspective, you cannot apply the same narrative to contemporary migration to, to Western European countries or North America. But I think it is so important when you talk about integration to make this difference between the local uh, and the short and the long term. So if you look indeed at global numbers, the 3% is very abstract because in particular neighborhoods, 30 to 40% may be an immigrant. So from that experience, it's a very different story. But again, I think you need to look at the longer term because on the short term, yes, immigration can lead to tensions, can lead to people feeling no longer home in their own communities. But if it's a longer term, integration has been a massive success within two or three generations, the vast majority of immigrants. And we see that time and again, that immigrants that in the past used to be seen as impossible to assimilate, have become part and parcel of, 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 of populations within two or three generations. So the long-term perspective is actually reason for a lot of optimism about these issues. I and mean, if you look in the past, how different population groups like Southern Europeans or the Irish or Jews from Eastern Europe were really vilified as, as impossible to assimilate and one or two generations down the line, you don't see these problems. I think you can see the same pattern in, in Britain very much so. Well, yes, it's, it's, it, yes, it's slightly complicated in Britain by the post-war idea of multiculturalism and, and you know, the idea that assimilation wasn't necessarily the goal. I mean, how, can you tell us a bit about that and, and how that compares with the attitudes in the US and Europe? I think in, in also in my own country, the Netherlands and Scandinavia and in Belgium, this idea of multiculturalism has been very pre- prevalent. The interesting thing is that a lot of those ideas that immigrants should be able to, to stay in their own communities, to be focused on their own culture and religion, were partly also coming out of a sort of politics of, of denial, that we got workers, but we 
we wanted workers, we got people instead. That's a famous phrase by the Swiss writer Max Frisch. And we have long held on to the idea that these people are not really here or won't really stay or may go back at some point. We've never never really accepted them as full, fully part and parcel of our societies. A lot of multicultural policies in Western Europe actually started off with the whole idea that these people would go back and that we had to prepare their kids for an eventual return to the home country. And I think it is only in the 1990s, 2000s that we've come to terms in Western Europe that immigrants were here to stay. So it took a long time. And that also explains a lot of the problems together with mass unemployment, which we had in the 1980s with a massive shutdown of industries and mines, of which uh, migrants were the prime targets, obviously. That led to a concentration of social problem. At the same time, governments weren't, weren't really willing in a way to accept those populations. So I think this is really the issue more. And a lot of what's been now branded as multiculturalism comes out of a, of an idea of, well, those people are not really part of our societies. Perhaps they're going to go back. A sort of thinking away of it, and I think it's the ostrich policy element, that's how I call it, is still causing a lot of problem. The the, the non-acceptance, particularly of the lower skilled migrant, as, as, as a person who's going to stay, I think, has caused a lot of problems, which we now associate with segregation and violence in some neighborhoods. That's very interesting. I hadn't sort of appreciated that before, that part of the motivation for multiculturalism was the idea people would go back. I mean, I guess that was the idea in Germany with the Turks, wasn't it? Definitely. And you see that also in the Netherlands and Scandinavia, or perhaps not even really thinking about it in the first place. So yeah, we had massive labor shortages and in industries and in mines all across Western Europe from the 1950s onward, actually. And we first got people from either former colonies, like in Britain, from, from Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, the Caribbean, the West Indies. In Germany, which didn't have colonies, of m- not big colonies, they, they got them from Southern Europe first and later on from Turkey. And there was never really any policy. It was assumed these people would come to work, so there was no integration policy. And then later we rebranded this as multiculturalism, which in fact is a form of apartheid light, as I call it in my book, a sort of non-acceptance or not even willing to think about those populations as ever being able to be part of Britain or Germany or the Netherlands. And I think that has caused a lot of problems. And I think that is still the problem because look at the current narratives in Western Europe. Lots of politicians say we want less immigration, but at the same time, nothing has changed in the structure of the economy and society which generates this demand for migrant workers, including undocumented workers. So we we are at risk of making the same errors as we made in the past. We say we don't want them, or we think we don't want them, but at the same time, they're very much needed for the economy. And I think that is the basic conundrum of immigration still in Europe. And here, I think, traditionally at least, the traditional immigration countries like in Northern America, Australia, New Zealand, have no problems in seeing themselves as immigration countries. I think Europe is still coming to terms with the whole legacy of being the former imperial powers and having become much smaller and also having become a destination of migrants. And I think there is still an unwillingness to accept that. And I think we're still in that process. And this is how I see the current uh, political situation as well. Yes, it was very interesting the way you put basically the demand for labour right at the heart of this debate. And I mean, I don't, I'm surprised you say that the situation in the US is different. I mean, it may be different in some respects, but if you go to you know, I had the experience of going to an American onion farm and it relied on migrant labour, even though I think many of the people in the farming community in that part of the United States would, would uh, politically be very hostile to immigration, but they were relying 
on migrants to come in and do the work. Yeah, no, that's that is something you find everywhere. So also in the US, a narrative has changed, particularly towards low-skilled migrants coming from Mexico and other Central American countries. It is the same story in a way. So there is a, an open secret that migrants do all sorts of jobs, often without papers. Yeah, who's cleaning homes in many big cities in Europe? Who's working in restaurants and hotels? Uh, who's working on the farms? These are predominantly migrants in many other sectors. If you think about slaughterhouses, distribution centers, transport, more and more these are migrants doing the work. At the same time, these are exactly the kind of migrants of which the official narrative of politicians is we don't want those people. And But I think the best proof of that is the extraordinarily low la- levels of labor enforcement, both in Britain but also in the US, the number of employers that get actually prosecuted for employing undocu- migrant, undocu- undocumented migrants is laughably low. We talk about 10, 15, 20 a year, that's all. And I think that really shows that politicians say a lot of things about migration, but there's this huge gap. I call this a discursive gap, a narrative gap between what politicians say and do on immigration. Actually, they don't do often that much about it. Once people cross borders or actually most undocumented migrants come in legally and overstay the visa. So even a perfect wall is not going to change this. And also in Britain, this is an open secret, particularly in big cities, that migrants do a lot of the jobs we no longer want to do. Yes, it's true. But at the same time, I went to give a lecture the other day at uh, London University. I had to take my passport to prove who I was before I could be employed for two hours. So I mean, there are some regulations. And I, I do take your point. They never seem to end up in co- convictions of the people employing undocumented labour. That shows there's no real political willingness. Uh, it's the same for uh, undocumented, uh, for, for boat migration to Europe across the Mediterranean. Everybody who I've spoken to, who's really involved in those policies, knows that this is impossible to stop. As long as you have this huge gap between the reality of the economy and the migration policy, which doesn't give enough enough options for legal migration for low-skilled migrants, you're going to have this phenomenon. Second uh, point is, of course, humanitarian migration. As long as we have wars going on close to Europe, there will be people trying to make their way to Europe. You cannot stop all of these people. Everybody knows that. And we are in a sort of politics of denial yeah. I was going to pick up on that and, and, and your very interesting contention that uh, helping uh, developing countries prosper won't make much difference, which, which is sort of counterintuitive. And we'll talk about that. But before we do, can I just go back to the issue about multiculturalism? Because I wanted to ask you whether that means you've reached the conclusion after all this work you've done on this, that assimilation, integration should be the goal. Because, of course, many of the migrants who've come to the UK are the, are the most... Uh, you know, active proponents of multiculturalism. They say they want to keep their values and culture uh, and to celebrate and have that celebrated and recognized. Uh, do you think that's the wrong approach? You don't need to make this in an official policy as long as you allow people to work and have some reasonable security about they, that they can stay and the kids can go to school. I, I think it is neither desirable nor... De- I, don't, I don't think government should intervene in these things. People should... Like, like it's completely normal in the United States that people still tie some, keep some ties with the origin culture. Why not? That doesn't preclude 
their integration in the destination society. I don't think an official policy should be made about it in the first place. I think we lose a lot of time. We better make sure that kids of migrants have access to good schooling, have access to good work, so people can participate in society, can pay taxes, instead of having this debate again and again and again, which is not making any difference in the first place. So we're losing a lot of energy with those debates. I mean, most problems of segregation, most problems of 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 to social tensions in particular neighborhoods come out of exclusion. The fact that people cannot participate on the labor market, the fact that people have been unemployed for a very long time, that obviously causes problems. But this is not going to be solved by an endless debate about multiculturalism. It's going to be solved by actively making sure that those people who of whom we know won't go back have the ability to participate in society. And what we're trying to do now is again denying this fundamental reality. We may end up with yet another situation in 10 or 15 years where we have populations who we don't really want to be part of the society, who we still have willy-nilly allowed to come because we needed their labor, but we've never really thought about what what we are going to do with this. So we need a real immigration policy, which makes clear who can stay, who cannot stay, but who can stay should also be allowed to integrate. And integration happens automatically. This has never been part of an official policy. Okay, I'm just going to push back a bit. I mean, I think maybe you'll just say this is a, there, there are not many issues like this, but I mean, there are some issues where the state just has to take a view on... on I, I came across a thing recently about the post office in the UK. Should it pay pensions to second wives or not of you know, employers, employees who've deceased? And there's, you know, there's a case where the state has to reach a view on the validity of more, being married to more than one woman, of course, which obviously you know is a tricky issue. Yeah, of and, course, but and... let's mm. but but let's not get sidetracked by these issues in the sense of like this is the essential debate. I think the essential debate is that there is a level of hypocrisy in the debate right now that we say as political community we want less immigrants. Then you have to change your labor market. I'm not saying there is anything illegitimate about wanting to let having less immigrants, but then you have to change, really do something about your policies. I don't see any willingness. Because the policies that governments, successive governments have pursued, also in the Brit- also in Britain, both by Labour and Conservative, has been towards a progressive liberalisation of the economy, less state-, state interference, more precarious work. That means also more jobs that native workers simply don't want to do. Who's going to pick up the jobs? Those are migrants. So we created an economy and a society that has become structurally dependent on immigrant labour. If you want to change that, you have to fundamentally pursue some reforms that are pretty pretty... Uh, that are a big departure away from from what we've been pursuing over the last 30 years. So that's the real migration debate we need to have in what kind of society do we want to live? Let's move on to this issue of, of um, you know, the, the, the sort of push factors from the developing world. And, I mean, it, I don't know, it's always occurred to me that, for instance, European Union's very restrictive trade policies, other, you know, many other rich countries' restrictive trade policies have prevented... Uh, farmers and other workers in the developing world from making a decent living by trading with richer countries. And and that is part of the problem, that these people are being kept in poverty so that uh, Europeans and Americans can live it, it, with greater prosperity. And and that is bound to lead to a push factor. Uh, I mean, I got the impression from your book, you don't really think that's the case. So can you can you talk us through that? Yeah, so we we think that migration is the result, particularly when we talk about migration from the so-called global south, is the result of poverty and misery and inequality and all sorts of problems. The problem is is that the 
evidence actually shows the complete opposite picture because poverty reduction leads to more migration, more education leads to more migration. So development actually leads to more migration, particularly when countries transition from being, let's say, low income to middle income. And the explanation is not so difficult. Migration is expensive, particularly migration over long distances, in particular migration all the way to Europe. And that means that it is already no option for the poorest of the poorest. When people have somewhat more money, somewhat more resources and connection, if infrastructure improves, more people are moving, first of all, from rural areas to urban areas, but some of that mobility spills over in international mobility. Education, the same. We have done a lot of studies that show as soon as people get get more education, they will move more. First of all, to get even a better education, let's say you go to your local school and then you may go to another town to go to secondary education and then you'll have higher education in the city and from there you may move abroad and that is not only to do with you have a certain type of skills you could only find in cities or abroad but also with aspirations of people if people get educated they no longer want to stay on the farm so people move away and that is why we see that actually if we look around the world which are the most important countries of out migration these are typically middle-income countries We talk about Mexico, we talk about Morocco, we talk about Turkey, we talk about India, we talk about the Philippines. These are typically uh, the emerging emigration countries. Countries where we see a strong increase in emigration, like Nigeria and Ghana, are typically countries that are developing very fast, where more people can now afford to migrate. But the most important thing is most people wouldn't have made that journey without having some job to come to. So we really have to see both factors together. But this whole idea that poverty reduction will reduce migration is simply not based on any evidence whatsoever. You actually have to reverse it. Migration is a resource, a form of development for many people. As soon as people have the opportunity to use it as a form to gain a high to, to gain a higher income and send it back home. And so remittances, the money sent back by migrants, is far more important in terms of money flowing to poor countries than is development aid, for instance. So for people, it's a resource. It's an investment in a better future of their families, but they can only do so once they have the resources to make that investment. So this is a completely different perspective from what we usually hear um, yeah, in schools, in the media, and uh, what politicians tell us. Yes, it's very striking that remittances from people working abroad are often a far bigger contributor to developing uh, economies than, than, than foreign aid, uh, just, just like Four you say. Four to five but... times more. Yeah, yeah. But but just on the uh, situation in Europe and the United States now, we have politicians who are saying things that weren't said 20 or 30 years ago about immigration considered taboo. Uh, Trump, Orban, uh, Wilders, you've got now saying these things and, and, and you know, succeeding with these messages. Now, when you try and analyse what's going on, do you think they are actually being more honest about some of the things you're talking about that you know that, that that they are prepared is this right that they're prepared to say we won't have the foreign workers and therefore we won't get the work done uh, it'll have to be done by other people you know by people who, who who have been in this country for longer are they actually confronting that debate or not do you think I don't have the impression they are, perhaps in the future, but so far I'm quite, I have reason to be quite sceptical. Look in Italy with Meloni, look in Hungary with Orban. 
uh, Meloni in Italy, despite all the anti-immigration rhetorics, is allowing record numbers of migrant workers in. It's proposed to legalize half a million of undocumented migrants. Also, Orban, at the exact same time that he announced all sorts of border crackdowns, he's also allowing in more and more migrant workers. So I don't really see them changing the economic system that is attracting so many immigrants. So I'm actually quite skeptical. Uh, we did a research project at the University of Oxford where we um, studied 6,500 policy changes in the field of migration uh, pursued by governments across the West. And we didn't find any significant difference between right and left-wing governments in the type of migration policies they pursue. So it is there is no... We get this impression that the right-wing is anti-immigration, the left-wing is pro-migration. You may get that impression when you listen to the rhetoric, but if you look at the policy practice so far, we have been seen very little of that. So I'm, I'm very skeptical about the degree to which they will deliver those promises, particularly because it would require a fundamental restructuring of, of our society and labor market. I can give you one example. Um, one of the reasons that Japan has structurally lower immigration than most other Western countries is that the Japanese work much longer until the age of 70, 75. That's one of their ways to deal with aging, which is one big factor in creating this labor demand. There's very little willingness amongst those parties to increase retirement age, for instance. I just give that one simple example, but I could give many more examples. Those parties also don't propose to re-regulate the economy, to, 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 to give control back to the government in terms of labor markets, to make it less easy to hire people on temporary contracts, because these would be measures really necessary um, to de decrease the dependency on immigration, although you can never think it away, but if you want some marginal influence, you'd have to propose such policy packages, I don't see them doing that so far. And I think that's exactly what's also what happened after Brexit, because I do really think that the people who favored Brexit, one of the aims was to reduce free migration from Eastern Europe. And in that sense, it has been a massive success, because you could also see in the most recent immigration statistics that the number of Eastern Europeans, or Europeans more generally, EU citizens moving to the UK has plummeted. But it hasn't stopped migration because they have basically been replaced by workers from Central Asia, South Asia and Africa. No, no, it's one of the ironies of, of it. It's probably not what the Brexit voters wanted. Uh, but if, if, if you... No. It's very interesting you raised Japan. Because I was going to ask you, you know, is there any country that has address this labor market issue, the fact that there is this demand for jobs and for work and that migrants are filling it. Uh, and then you raise Japan, which I guess is an example of that, right? Because they've been, I, th I think, very restrictive about immigration. Uh, so, uh, and their economy has been a disaster over the last 20, 30 years. So, so w w is Japan relevant to this debate? And w w how does J Japan fit into what you're saying? I think Japan is a good example that you can make a totally different choice. I should say, though, that also Japan has fast-rising immigration, has significant undocumented populations that may, mainly came legally and then overstay. But structurally speaking, Japan has a way lower share of the population being an immigrant compared to most other Western countries. And yeah, they have made some fundamental policy choices. Uh, the Japanese seem to have settled for structurally lower economic growth. Whether that's a disaster or not depends on your perspective, obviously. But if your perspective is to maximize growth, it's a disaster. They've also opted for 
robot technology, they have opted for much more labor participation of old people. So these and a much more regulated labor market, I shouldn't forget that. So we have gone the other way in, in, in Europe. We have Americanized our labor markets in that sense. We have made it much more easy to hire people on temporary contracts. Um, and in Japan, the government is way more in charge of the labor market. And that is, but it, I use that example to say, well, you could do that, but it would require a fundamental restructuring of European society and, 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 and the economy where the government regains, regains a lot of controls they have given out of their hands. But, but also, it was worth saying that Japan does not get much economic growth. No, that's true. So yeah, that's the, so you cannot both have, and that's it's a point, a very important point in my book. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have one, you cannot want an open market economy with high levels of growth, and at the same time you want less immigration. It's impossible. Immigration is almost following the business cycle perfectly in the sense of when the economy does well. If labor shortages are high, many migrants will come. When the economy does badly, unemployment goes up, less migrants will come. So in that sense, the best way to really bring down immigration is to wreck your economy. Right. Yeah. And, and just finally, uh, you talked about Europe, America, Japan. How does China uh, fit into this? Because, I mean, they've got this, they have this one child well, policy, is, so I, mean, I presume there must be an issue there. Well, that, of course, it's very difficult to speculate, but assuming that uh, political stability will prevail in China, because of the demographic implosion in China, China is bound to become a major migrant destination in the world. And I think what few people realize in the West is that um, aging is not just an issue affecting uh, rich countries. It is also indeed affecting China, but effectively many countries around the world. So many of the origin countries of migrants now have also lower birth rates. Uh, typical family also has one to two children in many places in the world. So we now have this assumption there is this unlimited supply of migrant labor around, but that may be a very different future just in 10 or 15 years from now. I mean, look at Europe. Poland is, is running out of children itself. Poland is importing more and more workers from not just Ukraine and other Central Asian countries, but even from Nepal these days. So we may face a future in 10, 15, 20 years where the question is no longer how do we stop them from coming, but it's more and more how do we convince them to come because many more countries will become destinations in the world because they're facing the same issues. Mexico is becoming a major destination in the region. Turkey is becoming a major destination in the region. Romania, Bulgaria are running out of labor supplies themselves. And China, of course, if China will become a major destination, it will change the global migration maps in ways we cannot still really imagine. But there are big changes ahead, that is for sure. Well, it's been very interesting hearing your perspective. And it, it is so striking that what you're saying you know, makes some pretty obvious sense about the demand for labour. And yet it isn't part of the debate, really. Uh, so I can see why you thought it'd be a good idea to write a book about it. Yeah, well, that was the idea, indeed. I, I, I don't want to prescribe any policy. I just want to show what is possible and what is not possible and where we really need to have a debate about. And, and that's how I conclude my, my, my entire book. I say, well, a real debate about immigration is about the kind of society we want to live in. You cannot disconnect those issues. You cannot just say, I want less migration or more migration or different migration without addressing the real causes of migration. And I say, well, there are many causes, but from uh, the perspective of, of Britain and Western Europe, we cannot think away this whole labor dimension, which is absolutely crucial if you want to understand why we've seen uh, this increase in immigration. 
Thank you very much indeed for telling us uh, about uh, your, your book, How Migration Works.